Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. The Congressional Sportsman's Foundation's mission is to work with Congress, our state's governors, and state legislatures to protect and advance hunting, angling, and recreational shooting and trapping. CSF isn't a group that you, the listener, would send away $35 to join. However, by being a member of Pheasants Forever and or Quail Forever, you're helping us partner with CSF on all three legislative fronts, federal, gubernatorial, and state, as we advocate for wildlife habitat conservation policy at all three levels. In today's episode of On the Wing Podcast, we're going to learn a little bit about the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation and how they work with these legislative offices, legislative levels across the country on behalf of hunters and anglers. And we can't have a conversation about Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's legislative government affairs without introducing back to the podcast our very own Jim Inglis, uh, the Director of Government Affairs. Uh, Jim, it's been, gosh, it's probably been a year since you were on, right? It's been a little while, yeah. Well, well, welcome back. Um, let, let's start with your introduction because it has been a little while since you were um, since you were on, why don't, why don't we start with your background and intro- reintroduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Well, thanks for uh, having me on here today and, and looking forward to the conversation. But Jim Inglis, as, as Bob said, the Director of Governmental Affairs, um, it's crazy to think, but I'm in my 20th year with the organization. So uh, that's, that's something, a little milestone there for this year. Uh, but I started out uh, back 20 years ago as the regional biologist for Ohio. Uh, did that for a few years, was part of the team that helped launch Quail Forever in the Southeast, especially in 2005. Uh, did that for a couple more years. And then we had this, um, the, the Farm Bill Biologist Program really started to take off. And so I became that organization's first coordinator to help expand that program across the country. So I did, again, did that for about five or six years. And then as we were getting into the 2014 Farm Bill, then I jumped over onto our governmental affairs team. And that's where I've been um, for the last nine years. So um, I live here in Northwest Ohio with my wife and kids and, and bird dogs. Um, I'm not a native Buckeye, though. I actually grew <laughs> up in uh, in the Finger Lakes area of New York. Um, and actually, there was a little football game there last night, Bob. But, you know, so that, that ended well for, for my family here in Ohio. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, it's great to be with you. <laughs> and uh, um it, you're referencing the uh, the lid lifter, as we say in the sports bid, business, the uh, opening game for the University of Minnesota Gophers um, taking on the Buckeyes, and it was actually a pretty pretty close game for the majority of it last night. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll admit I was rooting for the Gophers just because I'm a native Michigander, and and we just can't stand the Buckeyes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the other, you know, it's probably been, like I said, a year since you've been on the podcast, but we've talked about you a number of other episodes. Um, and we talked about you tangentially through all of your fellow college classmates, whether it be, you know, Ben Jones, Dwayne Elmore, Andy, I mean, you went to school with a huge group of folks that are now kind of in, in major leadership roles across the country in conservation organizations. Yeah, that's true. And it's about, and we're going to talk about it here today. It's about building relationships. And, you know, I was lucky enough to work there at Syracuse um, here at Ohio State, Virginia Tech, uh, Mississippi State, and through those connections and working in different roles in education. And that's where those connections were built. Uh, speaking of uh, relationships, you've got a close relationship with both of the gentlemen on the video screen. Why don't you go ahead and, and introduce our, our partners at the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, and and, and uh, we'll, we'll let you introduce them. Go ahead and uh, um, take the baton. All right. Well, uh, uh, first up, we're going to have uh, Chris Horton here, and Chris and I have known each other for probably close to 10 years. You know, we worked on different things together. Our partnership really started with CSF uh, formally about six or seven years ago when we really started to work more closely together, and so um, Chris and I kind of started to do that. And then um, Kent Keen is with us here today, and, and we work closely together. I'll let, let both of them kind of talk about what they, what they cover. But Kent also works on ag policy. And so we've worked uh, very closely together here the last couple of years on anything uh, farm bill or ag policy related. So looking forward to the conversation here today. And, and um, before we hit record... Chris said, you know, this is, I've been on a few podcasts before, but most of them are with fish squeezers. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and with that introduction, go ahead, Chris, and tell, tell us your background, because you do have a little, um, a little bit uh, extra background in, in fisheries. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Jim and Bob. Appreciate y'all having us on today. Uh, yeah, I started out uh, in my career as a as a fisheries biologist, and honestly, I thought I was going to be an airline pilot. I was going to school to to, <laughs> to, to fly airlines and and uh, jet around the world and, and go to some cool places to hunt and fish. But when I was in college, uh, the very first day of class, uh, our, our instructor came in and said, I would highly recommend a double major because uh, <laughs> there's no jobs for pilots out here right now. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here teaching you. So I thought, well, hmm, that's an extra 25 grand on top of the tuition. I might look at something else. So uh, biology was just always my first first love. I mean, growing up here in Arkansas, hunting and fishing as a kid, uh, I just I always had that interest. And and I did some some undergraduate research projects uh, looking at some effects of a local reservoir on our downstream fish assemblage prior to they had good data prior to the dam construction and data after and I just, I just found that fascinating and cool. and uh, I love to hunt as just as much as I, I do uh, to love to fish but for some reason the fish the fish side of things was attracted to me and so I went on to grad school at the University of Arizona and most people say why don't you go to Arizona and study fish there's no water out there. <laughs> well, where there is water there's some good fish uh, good fishing too so <laughs> uh, after graduating, I moved back home to Arkansas, got a job with the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, and I was a reservoir research biologist. Then I became the black bass biologist for the state because bass is king in Arkansas, uh, and, and we got a lot of our anglers specifically targeted bass. So, But working along for about five years in that role, 
it, it became pretty clear to me that natural resource management is as much about people and politics as it is about the critter. And uh, so I was I was still young in my career. I recognized that. And I had just the, the f- good fortune of um, the Bass Angler Sportsman Society, which is a membership based organization, the largest fishing organization in the United States, I think even the world uh, with over 500,000 members offered me the opportunity to go to work for them uh, as a conservation mm-hmm. manager and in working with the state volunteer leaders uh, of of their state chapters uh, on fisheries habitat, conservation management. And then I got to working with them in their state government, uh, um, state capitals, and then working with uh, representing anglers in Washington, D.C. on the Hill, which is how I got to know uh, the folks at Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. I worked with Jeff Crane, our president, and and Gary Kane, our vice president, on a number of projects up there, a number of bills we were advocating for. And they said, hey, how would you like to come to work for us and be a, a a regional representative and uh, your region consists of Arkansas. So I'm, I'm sure you'll probably want to move back home to Arkansas. So I did. And I've had the, uh, the pleasure of, of doing something I love working uh, on behalf of the resource, but with the policymakers uh, for the last 10 years here in Arkansas and in, in our 14 state region, which Kent helps me with there. So, hmm. uh, and I handle, of course, being the, the fisheries background I have, I handle all the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation's fisheries issues, whether it be federal or, or working with my colleagues in the states on specific state issues. But but um, but natural resource management is is a passion and there's 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 different components of it. You could be the, the manager on the ground or like Jim and, and Kent and I trying to convey what's important uh, out there on the ground to policymakers and be able to drive those resources they need to get it done there. So so yeah, forgive me, this is a northerner's uh, ears hearing this. You mentioned black bass. Uh-huh. I'm assuming that's largemouth. Well, it's actually largemouth spotted. There, there. I, I think there are eight recognized species of black bass now. It's the whole category. Ah. So you've got ah. uh, smallmouth spotted bass, um, and then there's Alabama bass. There's Swanee bass. There's the Guadalupe bass in Texas. They're all they're all the centarchid family. Uh, and and yep, that's the black bass category there. Okay, well. I, so I've got one other fish question for you. Just so forgive me, I'm fascinated. Um, my perception is, is, so you're a person that um, works with both, right? Anglers, hunters, a- and trappers. My my perception, though, is if you separate hunters and anglers, hunter is sort of like culturally from when they're knee high to a toadstool um, are taught about the importance of habitat, the connection to conservation. Whereas I think fishing isn't as um, ingrained in the importance of habitat um, because it, they, fishermen, anglers, they don't see it, right? It's underwater. Is that an accurate assessment? Like for, you have a, you have an easier job getting, hunters motivated around conservation issues than you maybe do with with anglers i would say that that's generally correct uh yeah the the fact that they can't see the habitat and they wonder why you know the fishing went downhill on a particular lake or reservoir and we know we knew it was going downhill because we lost maybe there was a a a good dense stand of aquatic vegetation that after a few years of high water muddy water uh during the, the growing season uh some of that vegetation died back or went away. So that vegetation was important for 
year class survival, you know, juvenile nursery cover uh, to be able to help that, that year class stay strong and enter the fishery, that, you know, the following years. And sometimes that happens and it's happened on, on, on one of my local lakes. So anglers are all mad that the, the agency is not managing it well. Well, you have to explain to them or try to try to educate them that, hey, this is we're working on restoring the habitat and the habitat is, is habitats where it's at. It, it is mm. a little bit more of an uphill battle with, with anglers just because they can't they don't recognize the importance of that habitat underneath the water that they can't see. But uh, but that's something that that BASS has worked really hard on over the years. I wrote about it many times in our publications mm. that uh, about the importance of habitat and in those really hardcore dedicated anglers out there that most a lot of them recognize it. And there's a lot of good projects that these bass clubs do around the, around the country trying to restore lakes and rivers. So, but yeah, that, I would I would say your assessments assessments correct. Yeah, and I think you're right that there has been an evolution too. Like it's become more and more uh, understood in the angling community. You know, right around with the dawn of invasive species, zebra mussels, um, you sort of start to make the connection of all the things that are um, underneath the water and how it impacts the food chain and, and all sorts of different fish. So I won't go down too much more on the fishing topic. <laughs> uh, it's Labor Day weekend as we record and Apparently I've got fishing on the brain. So <laughs> good time um, of year to go for sure. <laughs> we'll, uh, uh, we'll turn the attention to, to Kent Keen um, rounding out our podcast. Uh, Kent, welcome to on the wing and, and go ahead and introduce yourself, where you're, um, where you grew up, where you're calling us from and, and what you do for CSF. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, really my path kind of mirrors Chris. I think I grew up what 150 miles North of you, Chris in Southwest Missouri, uh, just North of Bentonville, Arkansas, the hmm. headquarters of Walmart. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm in the Ozarks, which is kind of weird to think about looking back where most of the dairy farms are now. Um, but really had a, path that mirrored Chris very closely, but on the terrestrial side of things. I went to school originally to college thinking I was going to be a doctor. And very quickly, I realized that that was not the route for me. Uh, I learned just how squeamish I could be. And so uh, within the same department, luckily, most of the prerequisites transferred really well into a wildlife and conservation biology program. And so I made the quick transition and through that got connected with folks with the Missouri Department of Conservation, spent a summer and one full academic year working in both wildlife and forestry divisions as a resource assistant for the state agency. Uh, And then I got the chance to do a prairie insect research project at the University of Kansas. Um, Admittedly, was not interested in insects. um, And it wasn't until I got out there that it really clicked for me as a hunter the importance of having that full ecosystem healthy and in place if we're interested in managing for the game species that uh, I think it's fair to say you and I are most interested in. Um, But it it was neat to put that together. Uh, Since then, I've developed a a great appreciation specifically for the the tall grass prairie systems. Uh, Big pollinator fan, but uh, taking all of that, what I was really interested interested in was working with private landowners Um, trying to help private landowners make wildlife considerations a part of their productive system. You know, regardless of what kind of operation, if it's agricultural, livestock, timber, what have you. So I was very fortunate to find a 
major professor at Auburn University, Dr. Will Goolsby, who's willing to take a chance on me. I was actually his first graduate student down there in the School of Forestry and Wildlife Sciences. And we had a really neat project working on uh, production commercial loblolly pine stands at mid-rotation, looking at different mid-rotation management techniques and how you can incorporate those for, you know, thinking about things like deer or turkey management, even all the way down to northern bobwhite management, while trying to maintain the financial viability of those stands. Uh, and it was a joint project with uh, the University of Georgia down there, the Warnell School of uh, Forestry and Wildlife Resources. And I uh, got to work with Dr. James Martin, who is a, a brilliant upland bird professor. Uh, I learned a lot from him, probably as much from him as I did from Will, but I hope he's not listening. Here's me say that. <laughs> but really, uh, the the thing that I took away most from that project is that what we're advocating for on the conservation side, the wildlife management side, doesn't inherently mean that you're going to be less financially viable on private mm-hmm. lands. Uh, and so I came out with my degree really looking to go into extension work, um, be it in a position similar to your farm bill biologist or mm-hmm. working for a, a state extension system. Uh, and then I stumbled upon CSF and found, you know, really what we're doing with legislators, with governors, with members of Congress is extension. But instead of taking it to the landowner to be applied on the ground, we're taking it up to the lawmakers to help develop these programs that then go back to the landowners. Um, So that's kind of my background in this. Um, Since then, you know, my with the background and trying to help work with private landowners and growing up on a farm, there was that logical transition to work with Chris and inherit some of the ag policy work. Um, Since then, as Jim mentioned, I've taken on a lot of the farm bill conversations for CSF and really looking forward to going through my first farm bill negotiation period here in the next year or two. You know, you talked about your your work with loblolly pines and studying them and how they connect with deer, turkeys and, and quail. When we at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, we talk about um, management in the Southeast for quail. We always go back to thinning and burning, opening up the understory for bobwhites. Um, you know, if if you don't thin on a, or burn or manage that habitat on kind of a two-year rotation, it sort of chokes out the understory for the bobwhites to move around. In your research, is that consistent with what you found studying them um, down in that neck of the woods? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the original purpose of the project was to test three different thinning intensities, a kind of a high intensity, a medium, and then your typical commercial loblolly pine intensity. And then how those different intensities interact with things like prescribed fire, um, herbicide treatments, fertilizer treatments, things like that, and see how we, we were interested in the timbers side of things too. We wanted mm-hmm. to see how the timber responded, but I was most interested in how the understory plant community responded. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were, my group was the first few years post thinning. And really what we found is that thinning is what's important, um, at least initially. And regardless of thinning intensity, we saw a strong understory response, which just echoes the common thing that we hear down there all the time, uh, if you want to use prescribed fire herbicide fertilizer, that's all fine and dandy, but you can't burn a hole in the canopy. You've got to have that, mm. knock that canopy back, open up, get sunlight on the fourth floor, and then those other management components can come into play. 
but it's really it's an ongoing project. There's a student at Auburn down there working on it right now with his PhD, looking at that three to six years post thin. And I think that's where we're really going to tease out those differences in the thinning intensities and how that impacts, you know, not just the wildlife value, but the timber value as well. Anything that you can say in terms of, you know, what I understand is like that first two years, hugely beneficial for quail. They respond pretty immediately. And then it starts to drop off as you get five, six years out because, right, the understory grows back up. Um, Is that pretty consistent with what you found? If you do nothing after you thin it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've got to have some kind of additional management practice in place. It's funny that you mentioned the the quick response in those stands. One year post then, we had quail calling while we were out there trying to measure plants. Um, so that was really neat to see. But absolutely, you could see it already after two years. You get things like sweet gum invasion, which uh, if mm. you've been to the southeast, you know just how annoying sweet gum can be for a native tree. Mm. Um, so it, it definitely speaks to the importance of a having a management plan, not just going out and doing a one-off action, but having a plan in place to where it's all part of a system. It, uh, you know, this summer, the biggest baseball game of the summer was the field of dreams game in Iowa. You know, if you build it, they will come. And as you talked about that, I was like, well, the slogan for quail is if you thin it, they will come right. One year they, they're they're whistling already. That's a, that's a kind of a memorable way to think about how important thinning is for, for Bob White's. One last thing that I want to ask about your background that, that caught my attention. You talked about studying insects in Kansas. And it, it, what piqued my uh, curiosity there was my, my brother got his PhD at the University of Iowa. And he studied, he studied these beetles that lived on milkweed. And he would use whiteout and paint the shell, one half of the shell, and then a real small pen to write the number on them and then assess their movement. Um, it was just fascinating to see all his research on, on this one particular insect and how they um, traveled and inter, you know interacted with different plants. What was your research like? Uh, what, what did you study in Kansas? I was looking at leafhoppers uh, with Dr. Helen Alexander, um, and they're a I mean, an itty bitty insect, you're having to identify them with a dissecting scope. Um, I spent huh. days cross-eyed after trying to identify them, but I, I looked like your typical, what you think about as a kid, when you think about a biologist out there in my wide brim hat with my glasses on yeah. with a sweep net, just walking transects, sweeping for bugs. You catch everything that you can um, try to release anything that wasn't a target insect, um, specifically the pollinators. I, did my best and not have any pollinator bycatch or at least minimize it. But we were looking at uh, the effects of prairie restoration on those leafhopper communities, comparing yeah. remnant and restored prairie. There's a lot of virgin prairie still around, but it's really dissected. Um, we talk about things like habitat fragmentation. You can really see that when you start looking at those native remnant prairies across states like Kansas. And so we were trying to evaluate our, our prairie restoration efforts getting us back to a community that's at least similar to what we were originally trying to recreate. Mm. And we found that by and large we were, um, it really depended on the effects of that fragmentation. How far apart are those fragments? You know, what kind of travel barriers exist between them for the migratory species and trying to extrapolate from this one small group of insects up to the entire community. 
I always, <clears throat> we have, I don't know, Jim, probably 400 employees and like 300 of them have biology degrees. And I always, which is, I think, a huge testament to, um, for our members to wrap their minds around the fact that like 75% of the employees of our organization are, are biologists. <clears throat> so we're grounded in science. And one of the things that I find fascinating and I love is that, you know, like you can't, they study insects, they study bobcats, they study black bears. And yeah, their, their focus now is on pheasants, quail, you know, maybe prairie grouse, sage grouse, but they have that well-rounded understanding of how everything interacts from, you know, the ecosystem management from grasses and trees to, you know, predators. I mean, it's just, it's just a really fascinating, because I think there it's sort of, you could believe that somebody went to school just to study Bob White quail. Right. <laughs> and then we, we hire those people, but that's not really how the biology world works. Is it Jim? No, no. And we even have a few fish squeezers, Chris, <laughs> so, you know, but no, I, I agree with that, Bob. I mean, just grounded in that science, no matter where it is, forestry, agronomy, mm-hmm. you know, range management, all of those things to put that, those folks in place so that we can, we can get that best technical assistance out there across the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to transition to talking a little bit more specifically about the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation's role. Before I do that, a shout out to our partners at South Dakota Tourism and South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. South Dakota pheasant hunting season is almost here. Are you all set to go? Visit huntthegreatest.com to get your license and plan the upland adventure of your lifetime. Huntthegreatest.com. All right, let's start with Chris, uh, the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. In the introduction, I talked about three-pronged approach, federal approach, state approach, and gubernatorial, which I've said that twice and I've successfully pronounced it twice. So (laughs) heck yeah. I'm on a roll this morning, um, but let's start with uh, the federal approach. We'll start with Chris. Um, how how does the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation work in D.C.? What's explain that first approach to to your organization for us? Yeah, sure, Bob. Uh, honestly, our whole organization kind of came about uh, really organically with uh, members of Congress that uh, back in the late '80s. They said, "There's." there's caucuses for everything up here. Why don't we start a sportsman's caucus? So uh, I think there's about 40 of them got together and launched a, a sportsman's caucus on the Hill and, and uh, it quickly started growing and they realized that they needed, uh, they needed some help uh, with, with uh, being able to organize events and to have that interaction with the sportsman's community about the important policy things going on around the country. And hmm. uh, so they started the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation uh, back in uh, 1989 and uh, started with just a few employees. But uh, like as the caucus grew to be one of the largest caucuses on the Hill, uh, the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus or Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, you know, we've we've recently grown to, to continue to support that. But the, the Congressional Caucus, again, is kind of where we all where we started. Uh, there are eight members in leadership. Uh, we have uh two uh, co-chairs and two vice chairs in each chamber. 
uh, it is bipartisan. I mean, that's the key to the success of the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, the National Assembly Sportsman's Caucuses, and the Governor's Sportsman's Caucus is that we, uh, fin, fur, and feathers should transcend party lines. We should be able to find some bipartisan agreement on the issues that are important to, to hunters and anglers and our natural resource conservation. So, uh, in, in we work with the through the caucus leadership, uh, as well as all the caucus members, I'd say we're probably in contact with, with caucus members. On the, well, we are all contact on a daily basis, and we're frequently in contact with that leadership. And we'll have uh, quarterly meetings with the members, as well as, uh, you know, weekly meetings as something's moving along that's important to the sportsman's community with, with, uh, with staff. And, uh, you know, we try to make sure that organizations like uh, quail forever and pheasants forever especially that that are on the lead on things like crp that y'all have more expertise on that we are communicating with y'all and making sure that we're assisting making those connections with the right members of congress that can that can help uh help facilitate you know successful policy um we have a, a federal relations manager uh taylor schmitz who is constantly on the hill or constantly in well in zoom meetings a lot lately with uh, hill staffers back to back and he covers everything for us and, and uh he's just he does a remarkable job uh and you know jeff crane has had been in policy for a long long time and has a lot of relationships with those those members directly so uh you know we're we're constantly in communication with with members of congress trying to find ways that we can we can protect and advance the our outdoor heritage here in the U.S. Hmm. So, <clears throat> a mechanics question for you, and I'll use Colin Peterson as an example because he's not in office anymore, and mm -hmm. can't offend somebody that's not in office anymore, right? So, it, it does when it does it function where like Colin would come up with um, a concept for a piece of legislation, and then gets input, goes to CSF and gets input. Or is it work the other way around where uh, elected official kind of comes up with legislation that's going to impact fish, um, wildlife, hunting, and then CSF sort of gets the pulse of the rest of the community and then goes talk goes and talks to that member of Congress about, well, let's tweak this or let's let's help you get um, you know, a co-author here. How, how does it functionally work? Uh, it's that it goes both ways, to be honest with you. Uh, ideally, we would like for them to come to us before uh, they introduce legislation so that we can we can help them fix anything, any unintended consequences there. And fortunately, over the years, you know, our relationships on the Hill, we have we have generated a lot of that respect on Capitol Hill. And, and we often do have legislators coming to us with draft ideas that we can then share with with the, the appropriate members of the sports community. Think, you know, is this is this going to is this a good bill? How can we make it better? What suggestions can we make? And then likewise, whenever we have something, a concept out there that we want to advance from the community as a whole, you know, then we've, we've, we identify uh, who those appropriate members of Congress uh, should should identify or should introduce that legislation. And a lot of times, you know, it's based on, you know, where they are on certain committees. Uh, and fortunately, mm -hmm. our caucus leadership has always been uh, really good about representing a lot of the, the most important committees out there that we that we work with that our issues go through. Uh, so we we can bring draft ideas of legislation to them, and we do that frequently uh, as well. So, like I said, it kind of goes it kind of goes sure. both ways. You mentioned it's the largest caucus um, in D.C., and I think the general public's perspective would be like. Nobody in DC hunts. Nobody in DC fish. Like this is this is incongruent to the perception 
Uh, but that's not necessarily the reality. There, there, there must be a lot of folks that hunt fish, care about the outdoors that are in these elected offices, or at least they come from rural communities where they understand the importance of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, there are some 230 members of the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, uh, both the House and the Senate. And yeah, they, there's a lot of them that do actively hunt and fish. My congressman, Congressman Bruce Westerman, uh, is about as avid of a hunter and angler as, as you'll, you'll find on Capitol Hill. And uh, mm. matter of fact, every time I spent some time with him last month uh, and, and we were we were there for, for an event, but all we talked about was turkey hunting and striped bass fishing in Lake Washita pretty much the whole time. He, he loves <laughs> turkey hunting. He's a big uh, hunter. and uh, But then there, there are those that may not be avid hunters. They might fish a little bit, but they recognize the value of, of working to protect and defend this heritage and to make sure we have healthy, abundant natural resources. Because again, that's, it, it's something that it's, it's easy for them to gravitate to because it's not a partisan, it's not on a partisan basis. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, and they definitely, I don't care where you live in, in, uh, in the country. Uh, if you're an elected official from a specific district, you're probably going to have a, a number of hunters and anglers there that right. you're, you're there to represent as well. Right. We'll, we'll come back to the federal level because that's um, there's a lot of issues key to our organization and our members. But I want to I want to proceed with kind of the three pronged approach of CSF um, and go to Kent. How does what Chris just talked about from a federal level, how does that differ at the state level and how CSF functions? Well, it's really, it's mirrored, but on a different scale. Um, so in 2004, following the success, you know, over a decade of success with the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, CSF began exploring the idea of doing the same thing within each state's legislature. And that's when they developed the National Assembly of Sportsman's Caucuses. Uh, they did that at the inaugural NASC Sportsman Legislator Summit. And at that first year in 2004, they had 14 states attend. And so right off the bat, boom, they had 14 states with a state legislative caucus that really it, it mirrors what's going on at the federal level. You know, bipartisan caucuses, leaderships elected within each state by their peers, members of the caucus who work with us on state legislation related to hunting, fishing, recreational shooting, trapping, conservation, you name it within this arena. Since 2004, the NASC network has expanded. Now there's state sportsmen's caucuses in 49 out of the 50 states. Uh, includes hmm. more than 2,000 state legislators, which I thought was amazing when I first joined CSF. And again, I talked about that NASC Sportsman Legislator Summit. That's something that we do every year. You know, we work with these legislators on a daily basis in our roles as part of the state program team that Chris and I both represent. But this NASC Sportsman Legislator Summit, that allows us to get them all into the same room. Now, last year, of course, we had to do it virtually because of the pandemic. But last year was the first year we had legislators attend virtually from all 50 states hmm. that come to learn about state, you know, hunting, fishing, recreational shooting and trapping issues that they can then go back, work with their peers to enact, you know, protect against efforts to undermine our abilities to get outside and things of that nature. Um, in support of that, again, we have the state program team. Uh, it's a 10 member team that allows us to kind of divide the country up into different regions. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm the lower Midwestern state senior coordinator. So I work with Iowa and Nebraska all the way down to Texas. Uh, so that's, you know, you can kind of get an idea of the diversity of issues that we're dealing with when you look at it from that perspective, but to help us with that kind of to keep us organized and to help keep those uh, legislative caucuses organized, 
we have our state issue briefs. And those, you can find those on our website. There, right now there's 80 state policy issue briefs hmm. uh, that cover four really general topics, things like you know protecting and advancing our heritage, um, general conservation topics, access and opportunities, and then even youth and youth engagement in R3, um, things like trying to get more folks outside, support state R3 programs. So we really kind of, you know, while a lot of organizations have their niche focus, we try to be that uh, go-between to connect those legislative caucuses to the sportsman's community with all of these different issues. Hmm. Let me let me jump in there and clarify one thing real quick. Yeah, there were there were fourteen at the original NAS summit that were in person, but that same year, total in total, we had twenty-one state legislative sportsman's caucuses that were, hmm. were launched. That were launched that year or already had something kind of in place like that because minnesota is one of those states that already somewhat had a uh, sportsman's caucus uh the minnesota outdoor, outdoor heritage alliance had organized years even years before and uh it just seemed like that was a great model we had a uh, really uh, successful model in washington dc there were a few states that already had somewhat that, uh, that same type of model going on it's just it was kind of a no-brainer well let's let's see if we can get all states to have a state legislative sportsman's caucus. So launched with 21, 14 attended the first meeting and we've grown from there. So when you start thinking about the states and how they approach conservation and the outdoors and hunting and fishing, you know, there some states come to mind as like, wow, they, they got it dialed in. They, they understand kind of the, the will of the people around the outdoors. And then there's other states that you're left scratching your head wondering like does anybody care about hunting and fishing in that state and i won't i won't put you in the corner where you have to point out uh, state centers head scratchers but um is that perception true in other words like um it, it, are there certain states that really you know they understand the connection economically socially culturally to and, and they're not there's not these bad bills being lobbed forward all the time, or is it simply, Hey, it's 2021 and we got soup to nuts, things good and bad going on. Um, is that a hard question to, 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 to answer Chris? Uh, no, uh, I think obviously when you have States that are, that have uh, a lot of large urban centers, urban areas, you know, they, they have uh, a lot of constituents that don't necessarily hunt or fish, or they don't realize that there are some that hunt or fish or the value of hunting and fishing. But I think what we've been able to do uh, and, and have some success is, is to help educate those legislators about the importance of hunting and fishing from a conservation funding perspective. And once they kind of realize that they're a state natural resource agency, some of them are funded 80%, you know, mm -hmm. by, by, by hunting and fishing licenses, as well as the you know, wildlife and sport fish restoration funds from the excise tax. And that really starts to really resonates with a lot of them. And they see the value in, in, in continuing to, to promote hunting and fishing in that state. But, uh, but it is an education process and uh, it, it's an education process every two years it says as you get new legislators come in you constantly have to be there and reminding them that hunters and anglers have pretty much paid for conservation in this state for for a long time they're an important constituent uh not only for uh not only for getting them elected but also uh, for for fighting conservation on the ground yeah i that's a that that really resonates with me that you got to educate because you think these politicians that get elected they're just normal people 
And if they don't grow up buying a hunting license, they don't understand PR dollars. They don't understand the North American model of wildlife. So I, I assume based on your comment that you do, you spend a lot of time sort of explaining the flow chart to, to new elected officials, don't you? Yep, we do. And it's not just in, in some of those states with, with large urban centers. I mean, even mm -hmm. in Arkansas, uh, even though we're largely, we, we're, we've pretty much picked off all the low hanging fruit for things that we could advance, like right to hunt and fish. And we're a pretty solid state when it comes to hunting and fishing here, but mm -hmm. there's oftentimes bills that are introduced that would impact, uh, impact funding that they didn't realize. And so you're even, even for states that are largely known as strong sportsman states, you still mm. have to const constantly educate legislators on on how the whole North American model works and how that North American model is funded through the American system of conservation funding, which is license sales and, and uh, yeah. that was for funding. So, um, yeah, it, it does doesn't matter where you are. It's it's always a game of educating legislators on the on the importance of, of hunters and anglers and their role in natural resource conservation. So we'll bounce back to, to Kent and finish off the, the third, third prong of uh, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation's mission, and that's to work with governors, which to the uninitiated, they're like, well, you work at the state level. Why do you have to have a separate approach for governors? So explain that to, to folks. Right. So the Governor Sportsman's Caucus, the final prong in our three prong approach, it started in 2009. Uh, again, before my time, but uh, the way I understand the conversation, they realized that they were really missing that executive branch component at the state level. Uh, and so right now there are 29 governors who are members of the Governor mm. Sportsman's Caucus. Again, bipartisan. Um, they're bipartisan leadership. Co-chairs are Governor John Bell Edwards from Louisiana and Governor Christy Nome from South Dakota. Funny that you mentioned South Dakota earlier as a sponsor. Um and one of the big things that we work on, very similar to the state level, is trying to, again, be that educational wing and explain the bills that are coming across their desk, what potential impacts they may have, either good or bad. Hmm. Um, but one of the other major efforts that we work with, uh, with the governors to execute is National Hunting and Fishing Day. So with every governor, whether or not they're a member of the Governor Sportsman's Caucus, but largely focused on those GSC members, we help prepare a National Hunting and Fishing Day proclamation each year. This year, it is Saturday, September 25th. That's always the fourth Saturday of September each year. And right now, those are going on. You'll start seeing those pop up on our social media. I was actually in Lincoln on Wednesday where Governor Pete Ricketts in Nebraska signed their state's National Hunting and Fishing Day proclamation. And that's an effort that we work with to really highlight not just our outdoor heritage from the cultural, the economic, and even the uh, ecological impacts, the benefits that we bring to the table, but really hone in on that conservation funding, uh, highlight the American system of conservation funding, and work with those governors who have a very strong platform to show how, as sportsmen and women, we're footing the bill for most of the work that's going on at the state level through that user pay public benefit system. And you bring up uh, National Hunting and Fishing Day on September the 25th, and that's a Perfect transition for me to talk about the Hunter Mentor Pledge for a moment. Uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have partnered with Alps Outdoors to challenge hunters to preserve America's outdoor lifestyle by taking a new or lapsed hunter afield this fall. 
The Hunter Mentor Pledge is our organization's critically important call to action to unite all sportsmen and women across the country. To inspire new participants and encourage mentors, we are providing some great incentives, including a guided hunt for one mentor and a new hunter. This season, let's rally the Upland hunting community to grow our hunting heritage and support wildlife habitat conservation because our future depends on it. Learn more and take the Mentor Pledge at pheasantsforever.org slash mentor pledge or quailforever.org slash mentor pledge. Thanks to Alps Outdoors and thanks to all the mentors teaching new people to hunt. You're helping save the lifestyle. So National Hunting and Fishing Day, so I remind listeners, you mentioned it, Saturday, September 25th. Um, that's a, um, a day that we celebrate as well. Um, Jim, let's let, talk about from a pheasants forever and quail forever perspective, just for a moment. Um, and then we'll, we'll dive into issue by issue, but you know, we, we, as an organization have two, two members of our government affairs team, and then we're going to hire one more. So we got three to cover the whole country. That's where CSF plugs in for you, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and so really, I mean, we'd always kind of work together. And again, maybe before my time on the governmental affairs side, but probably into the late 90s, early 2000s on something like the Farm Bill. Uh, my personal experience was that um, they, um, you know, CSF generally has breakfast briefings, you know, ahead of the legislative day in D.C. And it's an opportunity to grab members of Congress and staffers Um you know, an hour or so before the session starts to come in and, and learn about an issue. And so when you have that opportunity to, to grab some folks just for a short period of time and, and, you know, talk about things like Farm Bill or CRP, and you'll have several members of Congress and staff in the room. And so that's probably where we started then. Um, beginning about 2013, 14, we started to do get engaged more on the state side of things. So a lot of our states have, um, you know, sporting clay shoots or wild game dinners or those types of events to try to get members of the conservation and uh, hunting and fishing community together with legislators to have kind of a fun event. Uh, but we also do, they also had done breakfast briefings again in the state capitals around the country. So we formalized that um, um, relationship with them in 2015. And we've done that every since. So just trying to um, you know, and as was mentioned before, they have a network of staff that are working with those state members on a daily basis, and they can usually bird dog if an issue comes up, they're going to let us know about it as soon as possible. Um, or like was mentioned, if we have a priority of things we want to see move through um, in a state, whether it's on the administrative side or through the legislature, then we can kind of take that to them to say, hey, you know, there, here's an idea um, and something that we'd like to, to move forward. And again, working with all the other conservation partners out there. So it does kind of extend our network. Again, it's about those relationships. And, you know, we can't have a governmental affairs person in every state across the country. Um, but having this partnership with CSF allows us to have that connection uh, with them. Yeah, so that's a good reminder for folks that are members of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. We, you know, we have um, a staff uh, that do a whole variety of different things, but this is where 
um, being a member of our organization, it allows you to plug in through our relationship with CSF to keep a finger on the pulse of all sorts of things going on at the federal, state, and, and at the governor level as well. Um, let, let's, let's hit some issues. Um, and, and Chris, you mentioned um, a moment ago an issue that I wanted to touch on, and that was the right to hunt and fish legislation. Um, and I know that that um, is, a, is an amendment to the Constitution in the state that I live in, Minnesota. Um, Tell us about the history of right to hunt and fish and maybe um, some of the states where that's moving um, right now. Uh, Sure. Well, the history of it is actually the concept was uh, first introduced in, uh, was it 1777 in the state of uh, uh, Vermont? They they put uh, the right to hunt and fish in their constitution. Uh, So it's been around, the concept's been around for a long time. And it was just uh, several, uh, two or three decades ago that other states started realizing, well, we should, we should probably to just, just as a safeguard to ensure and ensure the future of hunting and fishing and science-based natural resource management, uh, that we should, we should, uh, we should look at doing the same thing. So uh, you saw this this movement with that right to hunt and fish amendments uh, start to gain some steam, and now we're up to. Can I, I know we were talking about it earlier. What? How, how many were you up to now? Twenty-three. Twenty-three states with right to hunt and fish, and then California, wow. and I believe it's Rhode Island had the right to fish. But and that was, I know in California that's that was in their constitution a long time ago. But uh, but anyway, yeah, the right to hunt and fish is 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 something that uh, many states have recently passed, and I think for states that, and I'll let Kent talk a little bit about, um, some of the states he's working with on right to hunt and fish, but the important thing is for the natural resource agency, uh, to be on the same page, uh, mm-hmm. to be supportive of it, as well as, uh, uh, all the sportsmen's community, uh, everybody needs to be on the same page because the last thing we want to see is, is one get defeated at sure. the ballot box. Sure. So, but, uh, Kent can tell you a little bit more about two states that he's been working with. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Kind of expanded to three states. You know, we had one passed last year in the state of Utah. Uh, It went through the legislature pretty quickly, went to the ballot during the 2020 general election and passed with flying colors. Mm. Um, So that's, it's really great to see. And that's a testament to the work that's gone on out there to get the community, you know, the folks that we work with, the state agency and members of the legislature all on the same page before we get it in front of the public. That is the biggest key there. It, and then you, you say pass with flying colors. My recollection when I watched this happen on, you know, election night, because a lot of these, right, these happen, you know, as amendments during presidential elections a lot of the time. So you sort of see the ticker. Most of the time they pass with super majorities, don't they? Uh, typically, uh Looking it up, uh, I believe is about three quarters of the vote approved in Utah. Mm. Uh, so about 75% approval rate. Wow. Uh, and they've been higher than that. You know, in some states you can see um, up 80, 90% of the vote in favor. Uh, so it's really, you know, it, it is a testament to getting everybody on the same page and then working with conservation organizations such as Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever uh, to promote that with your members, help get the word out through those grassroots efforts. Uh, because there is opposition. It doesn't matter what state you're in. When these come up on the ballot, there's opposition. Um, you know, we see it from 
the typical organizations you expect to see come out against things like this. Uh, but this year, we saw two more bills pop up, one in Missouri, one in Iowa, both states in my region. Hmm. And uh, we're working through the process there. And it these two states are, really highlight how the process looks. Uh, a lot of folks, including myself, when I came in, thought this was a, a very easy lift, not realizing the negotiation that goes into it to make sure that the wording's just right, where we are affirming that right, you know, ensuring that those who want to undermine our ability to get outside aren't able to come in and usurp these efforts, um, while also ensuring that we are maintaining that management authority for the state agency. Hmm. Uh, and that's a, a big key that we're seeing in both states, uh, because when you talk about Missouri and Iowa, they're both states that are very well managed mm-hmm. uh, and it, strong sportsman states. And it can raise the question, you know, why is this necessary? And that gives us an opportunity to work with the state agency and the legislators to have those conversations and I highlight why did, why it's necessary and get all parties on the same page before we move too far forward. Yeah. I think you mentioned there are 29 states that already have. 23. Right? 23. It, it's somewhat surprising that 23 states, almost half the country in Iowa and in Missouri don't have it passed. You know, they, those, as you mentioned, those are two states that, you know, hunting, fishing are absolutely the fabric of the culture there. So um, you would think it's a foregone conclusion that it'll pass in those states. And and I know I'm not a political operative, so that um, me handicapping the race and saying it's a foregone conclusion is probably not wise. <laughs> but you would think based on um, how much Iowans and in, and, in, uh, in, you know, the the hunters and fish anglers in Missouri love their outdoors that it should be set up for success in both those states. Yeah. And the states you see it in, there are a lot of strong sportsmen state that have already passed it, but there are a lot of states also that you know, don't always have that management authority vested in the state agency. Mm-hmm. Um, being from and living in Missouri, uh, we've been blessed. The Missouri department of conservation has that constitutional authority, right? They don't have to defer to the legislature. Um, so it's, not always as big a concern here as it is in some of those states. We saw, you know, efforts even this year to take away the rights of sportsmen and women just through the simple passage of a bill. And that's something we don't have to worry about as much in Missouri. So it gives us the opportunity to have those conversations and have very strong language that gets all parties on the same page, something that everybody can support. Well, that's it. You, um, you make the transition easy, Kent, to dedicated funding. Um, Because you touched on Missouri having constitutional amendment. I think Missouri was the first or one of the first, right, to have uh, funding for natural resources as part of the Constitution. Talk to us about that history and and what other states are trying to get dedicated funding for natural resources right now. Yeah. So first, I want to point out that everything that we're about to talk about is a complement to that American system of conservation funding. Uh, Missouri's no exception, but in the seventies, Missouri's voters, the state legislature and the department of conservation all came together and saw that there was a need for increased uh, investment in conservation funding. And so in the mid seventies, they passed a conservation sales tax. It's a one eighth of 1% sales tax on all goods and services in the state. And that generates about $120 million a year for the Missouri Department of Conservation, roughly two thirds of their budget. 
Uh, since that time, two other states have jumped on board and have the sales tax in place. Those are Arkansas, again, with a one-eighth of 1%. And then Minnesota, not to be outdone, they passed a conservation sales tax at three-eighths of 1%. So other states, you know, this isn't a, a static effort. Iowa, in 2010, they created the fund through a constitutional amendment. It was passed with nearly two-thirds support by the general public uh, to create the Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund. Uh, however, since that time, the state has not changed their sales tax code to implement that tax increase. Mm -hmm. um, that was a priority that Governor Kim Reynolds, who's a member of the Governor's Sportsman's Caucus, had going into the 2020 legislative session. But of course, when the you know, pandemic began, a lot of those priorities went on the back burner, at least for the time being, where we can evaluate and kind of see where the state's budget comes out. Yeah, I was, I will, Iowa Water, Land and Legacy has been a um, huge focus of our organization. Um, as you mentioned, it, it, it's sitting there past and ready. Um, it just needs to be... Um, um, put in motion with a change in taxes in the state of Iowa, and then it'll um, be the catalyst for creating a revenue stream to protect Iowa's water and habitat. And that's, boy, that, it, it, you know, as a person that's lived in Minnesota through the debate of the legacy amendment, and then, you know, here we are 13 years later as a as a hunter and as an angler to see what that has done on the landscape in more quality habitat and public access, it is absolutely startling in the best way possible. It, I am, I'm a native Michigander. I love Michigan, but the thing that I am most proud of as a Minnesotan is this darn legacy amendment. It is un real what that has done to produce quality habitat create quality habitat and protect um protect some of these just amazingly critical um pieces around rivers and streams and wetlands and create public access as a bird hunter um and it's it's creating access that'll be on the ground forever um it's it's just in pure gem and as a Minnesotan, I'm just, I, I can't sing its praises strongly, strong enough. Uh, just if, if folks are looking for a destination to go hunt pheasants, grouse, ducks, whitetails, and see what pulling a lever at a voting box can do for natural resources, come to Minnesota and your eyes will pop out of your head how cool it is. Um, with that, I'll, I'll make, I'll make Jim squirm just a little bit here. Cause I've had this idea for dedicated funding that I don't know how to make happen. So I'm going to throw it out to our podcast listeners and that's, we got to figure out how to create funding for conservation through sports betting, you know, with the, with the dawn of everybody being able to vote. Uh, well, not everybody yet. S certain states are uh, passing it at different speeds. But if I want to throw a hundred bucks on the New England Patriots to win the Super Bowl, we got to figure out how ten bucks of that goes to create some bird habitat. What do you think? 
what do you think, Kent and Chris? Do I am I am I onto something or am I on something? I I really don't think you're too far off. Uh, you know, you talk about Minnesota and the best investments that the citizens have made in conservation funding. You have a dedicated lottery funds already right. that go toward conservation. Forty um, percent of the state's lottery goes to natural resource investments. Um, so I don't know how it'd work. Um, not much of a sports gambler. We don't have that option in Missouri to date, but uh, I don't think you're too far off. It would just take a somebody with a bigger brain than I have to figure out how to make that work. Let's start it in Nevada. Gamble for gambles, right? Throw a little money on the <laughs> like slots. You know, let's create some habitat for gambles quail. I, I, I stole that. Uh, it, it wasn't the same idea, but I stole the headline from uh, Chad Love, our Quail Forever editor. But there's there's got to be something there for sports betting to to help us create um, wildlife habitat and protect our natural resources. Because, like you say, Kent, there's all sorts of different lottery funding revenue streams. It exists in Nebraska. It exists in a lot of different states. So why not? create revenue for natural resources through sports betting. Um, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a state willing to take a, take a um, flyer on that concept flyer. There you go. Philadelphia flyers. Let's give it a shot. Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, let's turn the conversation. So I've been at, at pheasants forever and quail forever. Not as long as Jim, but I'm closing in almost 20 years and I've never witnessed an issue with more fervor concern and pure misinformation perpetuated about it than 30 by 30. There, there are people that they'll just turn off this podcast right now because I mentioned 30 by 30 and they don't even know what 30 by 30 is. So let's, let's talk facts, Chris. Tell us about the history of 30 by 30 and, and what should hunters and anglers know about this concept? Yeah, thanks, Bob. It, it certainly has uh, it certainly has gotten a lot of attention here in the United States uh, over the last year. Uh, but 30 by 30 is an initiative that, that came about from the Convention on Biological Diversity and the, uh, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is a United Nations uh, organization. And, and, and really, when you think about third world countries, there's a lot of them that definitely could need to do a lot more to conserve natural resources in their, in their country. But uh, when I first heard about it, to be honest with you, I thought, well, that's great. The rest of the world's going to kind of catch up with the United States and, and what we've been doing here in this country, because I bet we're, you know, when we think about everything from our, our federal lands to uh, our national marine sanctuaries, we already have in the oceans to, to, all the way down to the private landowner implementing CRP on their property or something. That's we've, we do a good job in this country of, of conservation. Could we do a better job? Yeah, we could. If that's what we're talking about here uh, is, is better conservation and not preservation, then that's something that we could probably, we could support. Mm -hmm. But then last year uh, we saw a bill pop up in California, uh, assembly bill 30 by 30, 30, 30. And it was a very aspirational bill and didn't have a lot of uh, details like uh, what does it mean to protect? Uh, it was to protect 30% of the lands and waters in California um, by 3030. And, and so when we worked with the bill sponsors at trying to trying to define what protect meant, are we talking about conservation or you know, active sustainable management? Uh, they weren't willing to do that. Uh, when, we, when we 
inquired about what's 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 already going to count in California because California has a lot of a lot of federal lands and and a lot of conservation programs in the state. Uh, they weren't willing to indicate which things which would be included uh, and. So it was like, okay, wait a second. We, if this movement's starting, and it's not surprising that California might might start off with a with with a aspirational bill with not a lot of details and and uh, be problematic. Uh, we realized as a community, we we probably need to get ahead of this thing because again, if we're talking about conservation, that we we've been there. We do that as, as sportsmen and women, and especially organizations like PFQF. Uh, we need to be driving this bus essentially. So we worked with a group of, of outdoor organizations and came up with a statement on on uh, what any 30 by 30 policy would need to include for us to support it from the sportsman's community the millions of hunters and anglers out there to get behind it uh, and it took us five months to get there uh, worked with with, with Jim on, on uh, some of the draft language as well as uh, you know some of the fish groups and and uh, we finally were able to get to a statement that we kind of all agreed on, and we issued that in October of last year. Through the, and, and the way we disseminate that publicly was we developed a website. It was it's huntfish3030.com, and uh, honestly, as soon as we published that uh, uh, website and sent out a press release, within a few minutes, we got a call from Senator Udall and Senator Bennett's staff uh, who had introduced a resolution in Congress. And that resolution doesn't have the power of law or whatever, but it was it was recognizing the it was the first time we saw anything pop up in Congress about uh, about the 30 by 30 initiative, just encouraging the United States to look at conserving 30 percent of our lands and waters. Well, the authors of that resolution called us and, and said, hey, we want to have a conversation with you. So so we had we uh, we set up a call and, and and had a really good conversation about what conservation means. And, and here's where we're coming from, from the sportsman's community. And, and uh, they recognized that. But it, it was clear even in that discussion. And I, and I would say even through discussions today that uh, it, it's still a conceptual idea. And we have an opportunity to really highlight what we've already done here and build upon those conservation programs that we already have uh, to do better conservation. But if we're just talking about drawing lines on the map and locking things up, that's why we wanted that statement out there. Mm -hmm. This is what it has to have. If it goes any, if it goes sideways, we're out. Mm -hmm. uh, and and private landowners have to be a big component of this, incentivizing private landowners again through farm bill type programs or some state based programs. But we've got to work in partnership with with uh, with landowners who, for the most part, have, I mean. They they want to take care of their land and their property as much as anybody does. Mm -hmm. So helping them with the resources to do that and the technical expertise to do that, that's something that we can get behind. So the the America the Beautiful report came out uh, in, in May, which was facilitated by an executive order dealing with climate change that had a 30 by 30 component in it that President Biden signed, I believe it was on January 27th. Um, immediately after that proclamation was made, we circled up the coalition and we started having conversations with the 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 four leads from the administration, which was CEQ, Department of Commerce, Department of Ag, um, and uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, or Department of Interior. So we had conversations with all of them, and and they really, those were good conversations. I mean, we had some uh, we had some good dialogue back and forth, and it seemed like they're they they're thinking along the same lines as we were generally. Uh, but we'd, we'd have to wait and see when the report came out. Well, it came out uh, at the end of April, actually, I think the first or second of May called America the Beautiful Report. And 
honestly, it had a lot of the same principles uh, that we had in our statement. And matter of fact, the Hunt Fish 30 by 30 Coalition was one of the organizations, it was actually the second one they mentioned of the ones that uh, are supportive of the direction that we're going mm-hmm. and that contributed uh, to the report. So, um, so we're cautiously optimistic with what came out because one of the key things it did was specifically define or, or, or uh, specify that conservation, they're talking about conservation and not preservation because there tends to be this conflation of conservation and preservation today. Mm-hmm. And we know that conservation is active management and we actually can't, if we're talking about true biodiversity conservation, we can't address species needs out there in most cases without some sort of form of active management. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were cautiously optimistic what came out. The next step is the development of the American Conservation Stewardship Atlas, which is going to kind of serve as the baseline. So here's where we start to talk about, all right, what does count out there? So we've been working again with the coalition. We have a final draft uh, almost done of um, within next next few weeks, hopefully, of the recommendations of what should be included in there. But most importantly, we try to define, help the agencies define what conservation means. And I actually had one of them, one of the uh, administrators, in, in one of the conversations early on when we asked what what do you mean by conservation because that's what everybody's you know mm-hmm. all the speculations about out there and they said well you, you help us help us define it uh, so we got an opportunity let's keep driving this train forward and talk if we can get to better conservation we're in and and let's keep keep away from preservation and locking up lands waters uh to the public or private ownership so one of the the key criticisms the in the word that is thrown out there or the phrase is quote unquote a land grab but the reality is the idea behind 30 by 30 is voluntary conservation correct yes the in the administration we emphasize that in our initial conversations with them uh, over and over again and it it's sprinkled throughout the report Mm -hmm. i mean i think they recognize that that private landowners incentivize private uh, landowners to voluntarily uh, implement conservation practices is, is a key component. Mm -hmm. And there's already, there's already a roadmap out there called the state wildlife action plans. Mm -hmm. Every state has a state wildlife action plans. We already in this country, we have already identified where our species of greatest conservation need are. And we have the states ready to be able to, to work with private landowners and to be able to, to address those conservation needs and still allow them to have their working lands uh, and, and, uh, and not change any aspect of that, but to, to be able to uh, address those conservation needs. But we just need funding to be able to get there. And actually, there's Recovering America's Wildlife Act in Congress could do that, but that's a whole, whole other topic probably for another day. But uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, private, private incentivizing private landowners uh, is something that, that at least in the, initially, the administration has firmly gotten behind that concept. Yeah. And, and Jim, that's, that's the critical component for our support, right? I mean, this voluntary is the first word that we utter in front of 30 by 30. Yes, that's right. And that's what, going back to what happened in California when this came up and CSF and the other partners and, and myself were, you know, on uh, a virtual call with the staffers and the sponsors, Bill staffers tried to understand what was happening. And so to move as quickly as we did and get this information again, this we started working on this in the summer, and then we had it out there, the website and the um, the documents out by October last year. So we were able to move pretty quickly to get it out there to help shape 
you know, what our thoughts were on this and to keep it voluntary. And as Chris mentioned, you know, keep it voluntary, keep the money um, going to those private landowners mm -hmm. to implement conservation practices that do so many great things, you know, for the environment, for fish, wildlife access. I mean, all of those things. Yeah. So, so for listeners, um, uh, I'll direct you to, to learn a little more hunt fish 3030.com. You'll see um, on there the about page. It's really a who's who of conservation organizations that have signed up in support. Um, but use your voice. Um, you know, if you have concerns about 30 by 30, that's okay. Use your voice to say, keep this voluntary. Um, it's a huge opportunity if done right to create better habitat, better fishing, better hunting, more access. As long as it's voluntary, everybody benefits. So use your voice, huntfish3030.com. Anything you want to add there, Chris? Anything I missed? Uh, no, just we almost have, um, we're close to 70 organizations now that have signed on to it. So it went from the original 12 core organizations back in October. Just we, we had to move quickly and get something out. So uh, like I said, there's about a dozen of us that uh, put this thing together pheasants forever helping out a lot on that and and being an original signatory and then it's just grown but we also have a petition on there that you can sign as an individual and really the advantage of that is we, we want we want a mailing list of folks around the country an email list uh so that if and we're not at the policy implementation phase yet but somewhere down the road some of these 30 by 30 policies are going to be creeping up so we'd like to keep folks uh, praise when that happens, as well as which ones are good, which ones are bad, mm -hmm. and engage engage people out there because everybody can make a difference. Yep, yeah, it's moving. Just get engaged. Keep your finger on the pulse of this. It's a if done right, and that's why we exist to make sure it's done right for hunters and anglers. Uh, we need you to to stay engaged on it. Um, all right, let's as we round third base and head towards um, kind of closing things out. We can't have a conversation without talking over the horizon about the 2023 Farm Bill. And I want to I go to, to Jim about how he plugs in with, with congressional sportsmen um, on Farm Bill issues and how that's worked in the past. And what, what are some of the key tools from the relationship as you look forward towards the farm bill? So give us um, kind of an overview of the relationship as it relates to our, our favorite program, the conservation reserve program. And, and uh, you know, the most important piece of legislation, you know, in, in our history is knocking down a, a conservation friendly farm bill every five years or so. Go ahead, Jim. Sure. Well, as I mentioned, uh, when we started out, uh, my first personal experience with, with CSF was those breakfast briefings. So, you know, when you've got the chairman of both the House and Senate Ag Committee sitting in that room at that breakfast briefing, and they're sitting there in the front row, and they're engaged, and they're, you know, willing to take our recommendations back to the committee to, um, you know, get those key pieces of the, the conservation in place. As we've said uh, a number of times on this podcast, then you know, the farm bill is 30, nearly $30 billion over five years. And um, each time we have around a round of farm bill, we try to improve every aspect that we can of it. And that happens a lot of the times with the, the coalitions within our community. 
and um, you know working with those members that are that are also members of the sportsman's caucus. And so you know we'll be seeing that again. My I would say that as we get into next year, we might would likely have some more discussions around this. Will be more hearings um, in DC and around the country you know, with field hearings. And you know we're going to depend on on those caucus members to um, you know work through the details on on you know what we'd like to see that are going to help us all out here. So that's the plan. So the the folks that are in place right now for Senate and House Ag committees are those the people the people today that are going to shape the twenty twenty three Farm Bill, or is it still a little bit up in the air? So there's hearings right now um, around, you know, farm bill implementation or those types of things. It sounds like early next year, they may have some more field type hearings around the farm bill, but the, this farm bill expires in 2023. So we'll get through the midterm elections and then the next Congress will actually be the ones that will write um, the, the farm bill. But, it, you know, you look at history, you know, a lot of the times there's marker bills and messaging bills that come out that'll likely start next year. And that'll give um, the CSF and and the partnership and the caucus members an opportunity to kind of start throwing out some ideas on what we would need to see in the next farm bill. And and who is in place right now as the leaders in the House and the Senate? Just so some of our listeners that maybe live in those states are aware that oh, I didn't realize that they're they're going to be shaping the next farm bill. I should make sure they know where I stand on conservation issues. Sure. So we've got on the House side, you've got Chairman um, Scott from Georgia as the, the chairman of the House Ag Committee. And then the vice chair is um, Congressman G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania. Um, on the Senate side, you have um, Senator Debbie Stabenow as the chairman from Michigan. And then um, the vice chair is Senator Bozeman from Arkansas. Good. So you got you got Georgia, Arkansas, a couple of hardcore Bob White quail states and and uh, you got Pennsylvania and Michigan with long histories of having passion for for ringneck pheasants so um, those are four critical states to make sure you're in tune with your senator to know um, where they stand on policy issues as we approach the next farm bill and um, taking a stand for growing the conservation reserve program because you know when when we think back to 2007, 2008, kind of the peak of CRP acres, those were the good old days of bird hunting for our generation. And it sure wasn't that long ago. Um, so the, I, I always think about that as a reminder. It was so short. I mean, I still have the bird dog that you know was a younger puppy when the glory years of my generation, the 60-year high of pheasant numbers in South Dakota, Minnesota, Kansas, we can get it back, but we need the CRP acres to go back um, up. And that that means uh, starting now. You know, we're talking about this in 2021. We're laying the foundation every single day. That's Jim is thinking about every single day. How do we get more CRP acres on the ground for Bob White quail, for pheasants, for prairie grouse, for monarch butterflies, because we know that's the building block of everything we we uh, care most about uh, as part of this organization. Uh, what else? What am I missing here? Sign up for 
track the capital. You guys got an email list that uh, you want people to get engaged with, Chris. Yeah, I like I like Kent talk about that. Uh, he's he's been uh, more recently engaged with partners on how to sign up for that. So. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, so on our website, you know, there's a couple things you can sign up for. Uh, first is our, our weekly newsletter, The Sportsman's Voice. Uh, that provides a, a weekly snapshot at the federal level and across the region. You know, it breaks down CSF's five regions at the state level. Um, give you a quick and dirty policy highlight, one or two from the region. But if you want to be very highly engaged and know exactly what's going on in your region, you know, that tracking the capitals is pretty unique. And what it is, it's a a web-based software that allows you to go in and using our 80 state issue briefs, you can custom make a tracker that hmm. provides you, you know, on your schedule, whether they're daily, weekly, bi-weekly, however you want it, an update from the states that you're interested in. It'll show you all the bills related to those categories, where they're at in the legislative process, what's coming. And from there, you can go to your state legislative website, figure out if there's any opportunities for public engagement and really have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. So for those who are interested in being very engaged, very up to speed, you know, that tracking the capitals, it's free to use. There's no cost associated with it. Uh, and, and it's a really unique software. It's very similar to what we use on a daily basis in our roles tracking legislation. So I'll close. Well, I got a question for Kent that I'll close out with. Um, around the horn final thoughts. So you guys can start thinking about that. Kent, is Oklahoma one of your states, Kent? It is. So this is going to come as a complete curveball to you. Um, but earlier this year, a state representative in Oklahoma introduced a piece of legislation to hunt Bigfoot in Oklahoma. What the heck? Where 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 does that stand? What what is going on in Oklahoma? <laughs> At the evening that was pre-filed, I got an email from our vice president Gary Kenya, you know, asking if I had an inside scoop on getting us a, a Bigfoot tag. But uh no, it, it was a legitimate piece of legislation that was filed and Well, that's in questionable. It was <laughs> <laughs> But uh no, it, you know it was all, it was fun and games, you know, and it was interesting. It got a lot of eyes on Oklahoma, which has a, a lot of lore associated with Bigfoot. Mm. Um, but what it really ended up doing it when it drew those eyes, it had a, an outdoor recreational tie to it. Mm. You know, it got a lot of interest in coming to Oklahoma, going Bigfoot hunting, if you will. Um, so from that perspective, it, it's pretty fun. Um, uh, admittedly, when I first saw it, not really being familiar with that specific legislator, I thought, oh, no, what are we about to get into here? Um, but here's more of the background. You know, it, it's really it's fun, um, for lack of a better way to put it. And where did it go? Where does it stand today? Oh, it's dead. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was not actively pursued. Um, yeah. it, at least not in my track. Right, right. Okay. Again, after that initial. Well, but, uh, and I know like the premise was come to Oklahoma, spend some money on tourism in our great state, and go chase Bigfoot. But obviously that's just ripe for all sorts of bad things to go wrong. <laughs> Anyways, I know you weren't expecting the Bigfoot question, but uh, hell, 
that's that's why people listen to podcasts, right? <laughs> so <laughs> we'll uh, we'll go around the horn with closing thoughts, and it will start with Jim. Uh, closing thoughts related to uh, our relationship with the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. Well, I uh, really appreciated the partnership over the years, and we're nothing but going to grow. You know, our relationship and the things that we're going to do, and um, you know, the issues that we're going to tackle. Um, I did want to highlight that as part of our policy landing page that we developed about a year ago on the National uh, Pheasant Sorter Quail Forever page, there is a stateside piece that has a link right now to CSF. But our plan is is to try to build that out more so that we can take some of this, um, you know, some of the technology that they have put in place, but also a little bit of that human element to try to, you know, track the the bills that would be important to our members out there. So be looking for that. We're going to be working on that here over the next several months. So uh, thanks again. Good to be with you all today. Cool, uh, Chris, your your final thoughts. Yeah, no, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the uh, the relationship we have with Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever. Um, you know, at the, that the states, one of the things we, we try to do is host at least one state caucus event, if not multiple ones throughout the year. And and we always, um, it may be a, a, like uh, Jim said, a breakfast briefing. It may be a, a, a lunch or even an evening reception during the legislative session. But the whole goal there is to get legislators with members, uh, representatives of the sportsman's community to develop those relationships, to have those discussions, to hopefully build that trust and uh, long-term ability to, to implement good policy on behalf of, of our, our outdoor heritage as well as the natural resources and Pheasants Forever is just, you guys are always there, always participating. Uh, and it's so important for legislators and policymakers to see uh, representatives from all the members out there that you guys represent uh, that's important constituent forum so uh, everybody that that uh, pays that 35 bucks to business forever quail forever is is uh, is well represented yeah. in, in the policy arena that's a great point uh kent final thoughts you get them all right well i want to echo chris thanks again for the opportunity to join you guys today uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, the only thing that i'd add on top of what chris said it for your members, you know, use these tools, the software, Tracking the Capitals, Sportsman's Voice, uh, connect with folks like Jim and Bethany Herb and us, ask questions. Uh, there's nothing that makes our job easier uh, than an informed sportsman's community. Right on. Uh, so really get engaged, you know, pay attention, be informed. Uh, and if you have questions, don't be afraid to reach out to us and ask. Kent, that's a tremendous point. Um, you know, when we... When we issue action alerts, um, asking our members to do something, be engaged, we don't do it very often, and that's by design. Um, we, when we ask to take action, it's it's around something real significant and being engaged. Having a membership that's connected with what's happening is incredibly powerful, and um, that's that's a really really wonderful point, Kent. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for, for spending time and, and, uh, having some fun along the way. It was really, really beneficial. Um, it, it's great to, to have your team be in the voice for pheasants forever and quail forever, um, it, you know, across the country in these state capitals with governors and in the halls of Congress. So appreciate everything that, um, that you and your organization does. Uh, folks, and if you're not yet a member of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever, um, realize that our work 
hits everything from the shovel in the ground to create habitat all the way to the president's desk, creating policy for conservation, for hunters, for access. Um, if you're not a, yet a member, please join us. Pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. It's, it's the best $35 you'll spend to have your voice heard. Um, for Jim Inglis, Chris Horton, and Kent Keen, I'm Bob St. Pierre, reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening.